Well, hello, everybody. It's me, Peaches Christ, and you are listening to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. And this week, we have something truly special. It's another one of our limited edition idol worship episodes. That's right. This is an episode where we take a break from looking at an individual film to look at either a genre, an actor, a director, you know, something other than just one particular movie title. And this week's subject matter is beloved by my co-host. So he needs to really bring it to your attention and introduce this special topic to you. Without further ado, let's hear it for the one, the only, the authentically Italian, Michael Verratti. Buongiorno, peaches. Viva Italia. Oh, I like your uh, haircut. Thanks. (laughs) I can can tell you really studied on the continent. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But what you say is true. I am so excited about this week's topic. Of course, I'm excited about every week's topic. But this particular individual that we are having an idol worship for is a filmmaker who I truly, truly, well, worship. He's one of my cinematic idols. Do you consider black leather gloves to be killer fashion? Or maybe you like your witches with a boarding school education. Or perhaps you want a little couture with your gore. Well, you're in luck because this week we are celebrating the master of the macabre, the Italian gore maestro himself, Dario Argento. This is definitely one of those episodes that we know a bunch of our listeners are excited about. And if you aren't excited about it, you will be after we introduce you to the wonderfully bizarre, colorful, strange, dark world of Dario Argento, who is synonymous with being a horror fan. You know, one of the litmus tests, you know, when someone says, I love horror movies, is to say, well, what's your favorite Dario Argento movie? And if that person looks at you dumbfounded, you need to spit in their face and walk away because they have lied to you. They don't like horror movies. They don't know shit about horror movies. Dario Argento was one of the first real things as a kid I was excited to realize, which is that, you know, some horror movies were made in other countries and they could take on a different texture, a different feel, a different style. And I think Dario Argento really embodies that and helped create a whole new genre in the world of horror. Argento, inspired by the works of other Italian master Mario Bava, really took the idea of the whodunit thriller and ratcheted it up to this blood-soaked degree with his giallo films. Now, giallos existed before Argento, uh, as I mentioned, Bava did them. But uh, when Argento made his first movie, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, it not only was a murder mystery, it was a vicious, mean violent murder mystery with effects and gore that for the time were quite shocking. And he quite literally changed the landscape of European films. And you can see the trickle down of what he began to do with that movie swing over and influence slasher movies here in the States. For sure. But unfortunately, though, what what didn't sort of trickle over was the style, right? Like 
even Crystal Plumage has that fantastic style, which of, of course you, we see him sort of dive deeper into or get more um, extravagant with, you know, as the films go on. And of course, Suspiria is, is maybe the big one that people really latched on to. It, it is kind of like a, a magazine editorial shoot has been laid out for you or something. It's so beautiful and it's visually stunning. Dario Argento's influence, as we talk about with a lot of the movies that we touch upon, his influence at this point is pretty immeasurable as far as how many filmmakers he's inspired, how much, you know, his influence has reached out and touched the entire horror genre and beyond. So, Michael, I know, and then maybe the listeners don't know, but I know that between the two of us, this is a, a, an idol worship episode that's really right up your alley. I love Dario Argento, but I'm no Dario Argento expert. I enjoy his films. I am certainly a fan, no doubt, but you are a member of the cult of Dario Argento. So when did it all start for you? You know, I think it started when I saw Deep Red. Deep Red is is one of his giallo films. Of course, I know most people's entry point is Suspiria, which I did see later, but I just was so struck by how uh, Deep Red, Profondo Rosso, was constructed as this harrowing, savage mystery that even after I had seen it and knew who was responsible for the crime, I wanted to go back and watch it again because it was less Agatha Christie and more fever dream. And I think that's something that so many Argento fans love is that even in his more tangible movies that are set in a a based reality, whatever that may mean, there's always this element of objective reality where there's an uncertainty. There's a feverish connection to what we know to be true. And he plays with perception in a way that I don't think Western filmmakers really dare to do. Mm-hmm. Because you know how the Hollywood system is structured. If we can't spoon feed it to the audience, we don't want to sell it because people, if they don't get it, they may not like it. And then we lose money. I'm not saying that Argento didn't make movies to, to turn a profit. All films are to some degree that. But you don't really feel like that's a concern of his when you're watching any of his movies and sometimes to his own detriment. But I fell in love with his bizarre construction and his garish love of gross things and how he treated them as if they were beautiful. I've always really dug that about him and I've had a long connection to his work. As Peaches can attest, I have Argento artwork hanging in in the hallway of my home. But I rediscovered my love of his work during the pandemic. You know, much like you rewatched a lot of Carpenter stuff, as you mentioned in the Carpenter episode, during the early part of the pandemic in 2020, uh, I was very much by myself and I was just kind of trying to come up with themes to make my days seem interesting. And uh, I was like, what if I did a a Dario Argento marathon? And I rewatched everything. Everything, really? Yeah, everything. Even all the new stuff? Yeah, I did. Okay. I'm not saying it all worked, but I did rewatch everything. And I found that maybe it was like that scene in Clockwork Orange where like my eyes were like just open and I was like, just like (laughs) this imagery. It was like a barrage of Italian, like sex and violence and insanity. But at the end, I was like, oh yeah, this is my guy. And even when I look at my own short film work, especially the more like weirdo dreamy ones, like, of course, I borrowed from him because it's too there. It's in my brain. So, yes, you are well, correct. And you are Italian. It's true. So maybe it's a little bit in your DNA. Although I don't know. I think the Italian component to me 
really is is evident in the style, right? Like we know there's something specific about Italian style. Obviously some of the most successful, famous, influential designers in the world come from that little country, right? So style is a thing, color, design, all of those things matter. And I think with his films, especially, it's just opulence, darling, it's opulence. And you're right, it translates even into the kill scenes, which have an opulent beauty to them that you just don't see in other work. But the other thing that you brought up that I think is really a a key component is mystery. There is this other part of the the giallo um, genre, which we talk about with one of our guests, that includes the mysterious, the whodunit part of it, right? So it is both a mystery, but also a violent horror film, usually, you know? Yes. I'm excited because I know that this idol worship means a lot to you. It's near and dear to your heart. And also because um, I have had my own experiences one of which was at Midnight Mass many, many years ago, many years ago. It was one of the learning experiences I had doing Midnight Mass where I screened the movie Suspiria, which I love. I fucking love right. Suspiria. It's my favorite, which I know is cliched, and I bring that up. Maybe I'm not cool, but Suspiria is my favorite Argento movie. We screened it at Midnight Mass, and I did. I don't even know if I ever told you this story. Did I tell you what we did? I actually don't know this. I have PTSD. Post-traumatic Suspiria disorder. <laughs> It was a learning lesson. And at that time, my sensibility did not mash up with Argento fans' sensibilities. So early midnight mass, Peaches Christ is hosting a show. We're doing Suspiria. I think it was the second year of midnight mass. We advertise all over the place. So horror fans show up, Argento fans, many of whom had not previously been to a midnight mass. I think up till then, the horror movies we included were things like Evil Dead 2. So things with a little more camp, not a little more, a lot more. Although I would argue that Suspiria's got a lot of camp. But the point is, these were goths, and they were serious goths. They were humorless goths, the worst kind of goths, okay? And I love goths. I am a goth. These were goths that are kind of insufferable. And they showed up, and I decided to do my tribute to Italian horror, where I dressed my friend Corey. Corey Brunetti. Yes. He dressed Corey up, who just happens to sadly, for Corey's sake, the longtime partner of Martini. We dressed him up <laughs> in, a, um, in a chef outfit. I got a mannequin. And we hollowed out the belly of the mannequin. And so we put her on a table and she was like, her arm was draped over and the table had like a tablecloth on it. Corey came out with these giant bowls of spaghetti, like multiple bowls of spaghetti. And we brought up audience members and it was our tribute to Italian horror where we tied their arms behind their back, put the bowl of spaghetti in this hollowed out stomach of the mannequin. And then we timed them as they did. We did a spaghetti speed eating contest. So it looked like they were eating the guts and the intestines of the mannequin. I thought it was hysterical and brilliant and just such a great pre-show. Well, the audience sat there with their arms crossed, like not amused, did not have any fun with it. We're kind of like, who's this bitch? And why isn't the movie playing? Like, give us our Argento. And I was so miffed that it was the only time in the history of Midnight Mass that I left after the pre-show. I actually left the theater. I left my own event because I was like, fuck them, fuck this. They were humorless. They did not like the show. I thought the show was amazing. 
In fact, I just posted a picture of old Midnight Mass photos. So if you see a picture in this big album that I just posted of, of Corey with a chef hat on, that's from Suspiria. That's, oh, wow. That, that's the night we did it. So do you do you have like a moment pause every time you eat spaghetti and think of <laughs> your, your I, failure? You know what? I still think I'm right and they're wrong. I still think it was fucking amazing. I would have I had a blast with that, yeah. to be honest. And, and I say this as a, uh, you know, firmly indebted Argento fan. I think that you hit the nail on the head earlier, though. Argento is a cult filmmaker with yeah. a style all his own. But he's not like really a, a raucous party filmmaker. In, in comparison to Evil Dead, True. there is this sort of like, well, it's the term you like to use a lot. There's sort of a fall, fall, fall about yeah. it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that, as much as I want to see these movies at midnight and I would have spaghetti out of a mannequin stomach. Sure. Why not? That sounds like a good time to me. I think that one thing that's difficult to navigate sometimes in Argento fandom is there are people who are overly serious about it, which is interesting because I don't think that's who he is. Like if you watch his movies, he's so firmly anti-establishment. It's funny because you were talking about, uh, you know, the key to Italian art is style. You, You mentioned that earlier. And while you were talking, I, it also sort of occurred to me that another influence is tradition. Mm. And, you know, I, I having old Italian relatives and like how some things are, this is the way it's always been and this is how we do. And, you know, of course, there's that Catholic thread that we've discussed in other episodes. What's interesting about Argento is Argento is a celebration of style and a bucking of tradition. He clearly does not like the rigidity of tradition. And all of his movies are like a slap across that. Oh, you want to go and have a beautiful time at the movies? No. Uh, No. Uh, No. Uh, And I I just think that there's something really, really interesting about that clash of the art house kids and and the punk kids, because I feel like it should be a a beautiful meeting space. But uh, apparently got worse after I left. So I left and the regular midnight mass like camp attendees, the queens you know, they talk back to the screen, you know, the serious Argento fans were not having it. So apparently I actually did myself a favor by leaving because there were people demanding refunds. And now again, this is like the early days of Midnight Mass. Right. If Peaches Christ did a Suspiria screening today, I don't think that would happen. I would be able to set the tone and people would understand what they were at. But I also don't think I'd make the same mistake twice, to be honest. No, in fact, I challenge, since we frequently and maybe haphazardly in every episode proclaim we're going to do a live event based on something. Yeah. But maybe the time is now that now that we have the podcast and we know that there are Argento fans within our universe that are not going to sit there arms crossed. Maybe it's time we bring a Suspiria screening back and do it. Maybe I could finally do my proper entrance. I want to fall from the sky. I want to land on the stage. I want to plop onto the stage. That should be my entrance. Cascading through a giant window from atop the auditorium. So this is our promise to you. Yes. I might die. But we're going to do this first. But it will be for art. And what's more (laughs) Italian than that, Peaches? Exactly. The last time I theatrically saw Suspiria, it was a very different experience than yours. I went with Thomas Decker, our dear friend and former Midnight Mass guest. Thomas and I went to a screening at the Egyptian Theater many years ago where Goblin, who scores most of Argento's films, they performed the Suspiria music with Suspiria. And it was just truly magical night. Now, the audience was rowdy that night for a different way, and everyone was sort of into it. So, yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of more the spirit that I think I would have enjoyed. And sadly, I was 
supposed to do an event with Goblin some years ago, maybe around the time that you and Thomas went at the Castro Theater with the Italian Film Festival here in San Francisco. And it got postponed or canceled, not because of the pandemic. It was for some reason or another with Goblin. And that is uh, one of those little, little show business regrets. We, everyone who's in show business, for as many projects as you've seen us do, there's a mountain that was supposed to happen or might have maybe going to happen, but they never happened. And that's one of those projects that I thought was really going to happen and it didn't happen. And, you know, Goblin, I mean, you know, we could do a whole podcast just on Goblin alone. Absolutely. And we may. Yeah, that's true. But we, we don't have time for that right now because we have two fantastic guests coming up. And, you know, Goblin notoriously worked with Argento a lot. And our next guest also worked with Argento at least once. And that's one of the reasons he's joining us here today. This person is a dear friend of mine, but also an accomplished screenwriter, stage performer, musician. And he happens to be the co-writer of Dario Argento's Giallo starring Adrian Brody. It's Sean Keller. And we're talking to him right now. Welcome back, listeners. Of course, when we were putting this episode together, I just had to ask this next person to join us. Because more than just an enthusiast of the Italian maestro of mayhem, our next guest, along with his writing partner, Jim Agnew, wrote Dario Argento's 2009 film Giallo, starring Adrian Brody. Additionally, he and Jim have penned such films as The Capture, Rage, starring Nicolas Cage, and Blumhouse's All That We Destroy. As an actor, he's appeared in such films as Monsterland, Another Yeti, a love story, life on the streets, and a Halloween trick. He starred as Roger in the first national touring production of Rent and as Buddy Holly in the touring production of Buddy, the Buddy Holly story. And he's a recording artist whose killer Sounds of Halloween trilogy of albums have become an annual staple for horror audiophiles. He's a writer, performer, actor, rock and roller, and so much more. Please welcome Sean Keller. Oh, can I get that every day? I want that every day. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, Sean. Yes. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm such a fan of the show. I love it. We adore you. And I knew, as I said in the intro, you have the distinction of being one of the few Americans to write a movie for Dario Argento. But before we even get into that journey, can you maybe speak to when you, as a horror fan, first discovered his work? Oh, yeah. I think I was impacted by Dario before I knew who he was or anything about his work. I remember very specifically as a little kid growing up in the Northern Virginia suburbs and flipping channels on a Saturday night. Back in the day, commercials for rated R movies didn't play until sort of after 10 p.m. And so it was a Saturday night and I was flipping channels between SNL and uh, Count Gordeval's Creature Feature. And on both channels, there was the commercial for Suspiria with the woman combing her hair and turns around and there's this skull and then these veiny pulsing breathing letters and it scared the shit out of me. I was <laughs> I was like just horrified. I was like, ooh, turn the channel and I changed it to the other channel and then it was on there again. I was like, no, 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 and, and didn't know where to go with it. And for a while, I wouldn't see the movie. I didn't really know then about, I think the first Argento I saw was Phenomenal. I think it was actually Creepers. And I was drawn to it because of the heavy metal uh, soundtrack and you know video store appeal. Um, and 
I liked it. And my video store guy said I should watch Suspiria. And I was like, no, like it sort of <laughs> stuck with me for a long time. And so it took a while for me to, to sort of find my way to it. But I remember watching, this is in high school for me. Um, and it was like a madman made it. It didn't mm. make sense. Like there's a girl commuting with bugs and there's a chimp and, you know, hey, there's Donald Pleasance, you know, that's, that's like the guy from Halloween, you know? And so everything about it was like, it felt familiar, but not. And I wasn't really sure, I wasn't really aware that I was watching an Italian film and what that even meant. But that was the first more I saw it. I was like, okay, this is, this is cool. I need to find more of this. <laughs> um, and so those films sort of spoke to a, a, a sort of nonsensical nightmare fear that was hard to wrap my brain around. And I think because of that, it was appealing. Everything about it was so, it was so other that um, it was very hard to categorize. Yeah. Well, Argento specifically, but but the Italian horror films, m most of them have that sort of uh, otherworldliness or this sort of like, who made this, you know? And Argento obviously is the godfather of it all. But I have a question because so many of us, myself included, were people who were attracted to dark stuff, attracted to scary stuff. And our attraction to it often was through a television commercial or a poster in a video store. And often that marketing was so effective that we, like you said, uh, were reluctant, you know, because our imaginations actually created what it was. We actually have a number, we've interviewed a number of people who only heard soundtracks to Rocky Horror or Shock Value well before they saw the movie. So their imaginations were kind of running wild with what this could be. So when you finally saw it, how did it live up to or not your expectations? It did not. It was one of those things that I built up in my mind as being the scariest thing in the world. And when I saw it, mm -hmm. it was so very difficult for me to categorize and comprehend that I kind of dismissed it for a while mm. and sort of brushed it off and, and was paying more attention to the kind of movies that Dario would produce than the kind of movies he would make mm -hmm. um, at that time. And I was like the demons and the, you know, things like that. And so it wasn't until I came back at it as sort of an, an adult you know, aspiring filmmaker that I really fell in love with Suspiria. You know, I think most of Dario's stuff I came to accidentally and almost tangentially, but when I sought it out as an adult, that's when it really made an actual impact. Like before it sort of colored me in a way that sure, pop video colors you. You like flipping the dial and everything you hear is gonna seep in. But I think as an adult filmmaker, when I finally said, you know, horror movies, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really focus on this and I'm gonna study everything and I dove deep and I just fell in love. I just thought he was brilliant. Still think he's brilliant. <laughs> I think Suspiria also marks kind of a, a pivot point for his career because up until that point, he had really been doing Jollos, these, these crime films with, uh, you know, mystery killers and blood, leather gloves. And now we're starting to get into the supernatural, which of course he does with creepers slash phenomena. Do you have a preference for the, the the style of film he does? Because he's sort of a master of both, but they're in his works, totally very different. They're, they are so different. I, you know, my favorite of his movies of his is sort of where they meet is Tenebrae because it's the Jallo setup that just goes bizarre. It doesn't go supernatural, but it goes so weird in its transference. So I'm like, okay, this is, this is like him mixing it perfectly, but I do prefer sort of the crimey, grimy, him, him doing his twisty little mysteries. I find them really fascinating. They have such a sort of obsessive design to them that is fantastic. It's always just a little bit distancing too. Like some filmmakers really draw you in and some may sort of stand back and look at it like you're in a gallery. And Argento, I think, 
falls into that category. And in a way that you could very easily dismiss as pretentious, but it isn't. He's indulgent. And I think there's a big difference. Uh, he indulges his artist inside. And I, and I love, love, love that about him. And he's not afraid to treat like his own obsessions as art. And I think that's glorious. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Sean, since we have you here, and uh, I know that I've wondered, but you're going to be the definitive answer. Can you please tell me exactly how it is correctly pronounced, the word giallo? Giallo? You nailed it. Giallo. It's got the I-A. It's a giallo. It's just yellow. It's just, you know, you're saying yellow with an Italian accent. It's giallo. Right. Um, So you can toss it off. So, and it means yellow in Italian. And I have, as a longtime horror fan, always associated the the meaning to be Argento. (laughs) You know, sort of synonymous with Dario Argento. But could you tell us, since you wrote the movie for Dario Argento with with the title Giallo, um, what this word really means and where it came to be and, you know, how he sort of, in my mind, and maybe I'm coming at it from a very American horror fan point of view of a kid who grew up in the 80s being introduced to these movies, you know, Argento equaled Giallo, Giallo equaled Argento. What's Mm. the bigger picture that I'm missing? Well, the name comes from the series of paperbacks that were always published with a yellow cover. And that was this one publishing imprint that put out these mysteries. They're all always a little bit lurid and a little bit adult. And that sort of yellow cover let people know, all right, don't, this isn't to be put in kids' hands. Uh, This is your adult mystery. Um, And so taking these adult, thrillery, sex-laden mysteries and translating them into cinema, uh, they started becoming jolly early on. And so, you know, Blood and Black Lace is, a, is definitely one. The Girl Who Knew Too Much is like proto-Jallo. And so it really is, what we become come to know it is what Dario did to it. And that was to infuse uh, this super high level of sort of fashion photography on top mm-hmm. of it. Because, you know, he the idea of beautiful people dying beautifully um, was his obsession. And so he, you take that, what he did to it, and that becomes then Jally or Jallo cinema. You know, uh-huh. all the imitators are copying the bourbon, the crystal plumage, you know, that right. that's, that was the kickoff point for the million imitators. You know, Bava was doing it uh, and doing it in his style, but it wasn't until Argento did it that the million ships were launched. You know, I think that Jallo as a descriptor gets overused and overtrotted out. And mm-hmm. Um, I think that you 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 maybe already spoke to this or at least began to dig into this because of it, it's rooted in aesthetic. It's rooted in an opulence. But then you see like, you know, malignant comes out mid pandemic and people are like, oh, it's like an American job. Is it? Question mark. Yeah. No. But then <laughs> what what's the difference between a slasher and a giallo to you? To me, it's the mystery. The whodunit. If you take the whodunit out, it's not really a giallo. And to be fair, the movie, the screenplay that we wrote that we titled Yellow, very cheekily, um, uh, was not intended to be a straight giallo, but when translated into Italian for Dario to read, he said, and I love the title. And that's when we went, oh shit, it's gonna come out with the title giallo. And everyone's gonna expect this to be like a straight giallo. Like we knew that we had, had veered away from the sort of the killer with the black gloves, the somewhat bizarre reveal of a killer at the end and quite often linked to an animal in some way. I love that like the bird with the crystal plumage, you know, it's just the sound of the bird. 
is what draws right. it. But then in the movie, uh, in, in a, a Suspiria, you actually see a bird with crystal plumage being used as a weapon. You know, right. uh, his, his self-referentialness was so great already. Um, but it, it, I don't know. I, I find the, the categorization of it to be something, yeah, people overuse. They tend to use it when they mean something lurid or overly stylized. And it really is just a whodunit with beautiful people dying, uh, typically uh, a, an investigator who isn't a pro, it's usually a, a writer or a musician um, is handling the investigation of it, sometimes with a cop, but the cop usually fucks it up. And so that, that's, that's what a giallo is to me. It's a murder mystery with the sleaze and the violence of a slasher, but that whodunit nature that you don't get in a typical slasher, except I'd say the original Friday the 13th is pretty damn close to a, an American giallo because you don't know who's doing it and you get the weird reveal at the end that it's, uh, that it's mother- and uh, that's pretty close to Italian cinema. Yeah. And as you're as you're speaking, I, I, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, it's something I've always kind of uh, thought of as is very specific, like I said, to the Argento movies. But as you're speaking, I'm like, wait a second. Dressed to Kill is a Jello movie, you know? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like there's all these, yeah, there's these movies popping into my head where I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense, right? And yeah, Friday the 13th, the first one, especially because of the, the finale, you know, that makes tons of sense. The beauty part that you have brought up a few times is one that people forget to talk about. That is like, you watch a film like Suspiria and it's like, it's hardcore art. You know, like there's, yeah. there's a uniqueness to the, the artistry of it and the visuals that's just so incredible. Um, and the, yeah, the fashion world and the beauty of the kills, which leads me to my next question. What is up with the color of blood in these movies and why is it so unique, you know, it, it, and not natural? I do not know. I, I think part of it's the time. You even look at like Herschel Gordon Lewis, you know, just a little bit before this and his stuff is paint looking. Um, I don't know when it became real blood color in cinema, honestly. That would be a good question for the real hardcore horror fans. The only one I can think of is maybe Texas Chainsaw where the blood really looks bloody yeah. um, and kind of rust colored. The movies were black and white, right? Like oh, yeah. the blood was much more convincing in Psycho than it, than it is in Suspiria, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just weird. But uh, part of it is that lurid color. And when you're speaking to Argento's sort of uh, fantasy pieces, he does like, especially Suspiria, he really wanted to go primary colors with everything, you mm -hmm. know, that very uh, Snow White aesthetic to give it that Disney thing. And so in that one, the blood is red, like just the color red. There's no, like, it's, it's not some shade of, it's, <laughs> it is it's like a red, red. Corvette. Yeah. 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 It's, it's amazing. <laughs> but it also is the color processing, right? But it was either Eastern yeah. color or Technicolor. And I'm sure that color plays better on a drive-in screen than many. You know, yeah. when you're talking about dimming lights and that kind of uh, these kind of films playing in that kind of environment quite traditionally, uh, I think maybe that was part of the, the appeal of going that way with it. From someone who sees these movies, how did you book the gig? How did you end up <laughs> writing a movie for him? So I was in the middle of writing uh, with John Carpenter at the time, which wow. was amazing. Um, so we were developing, we did production rewrites on The Ward and uh, had been developing a project with him for a long time. And he's a delight and awesome. At that time, we we're like, all right, what do we do next? And the horror was kind of inundated with little girls with wet hair and torture porn. And, and we wanted to do something completely different. So we just said, 
how about some Euro sleaze? And that was really our jumping off point. It wasn't just Jallo or an Argento. We were thinking, you know, Jess Franco and Juan Pico Simone and the, like just something that wasn't American because we were feeling like the jingoism going on in America was really upsetting in the early aughts. Um, and so we wanted to do something specifically European vibe, but with enough of a little American entry that people would pay attention. And so we wrote Thriller about a model in Italy who have the, you know, the, the out of town sister comes in to investigate. And the one thing we wanted to do is say, this is probably the most misogynistic genre on earth. How do we deal with that? And so that was one of our first things we sort of conceptually decided, all right, well, we want an indictment of the cop movie where the police officer, it isn't just good enough to arrest the bad guy. You got to kill him. And we found that to be like this disgusting trope uh, that was overdone. So we decided, what if we create a movie where the cop could let the killer go and then the girl in trouble would live. But if he kills him, he kills her. And so we made it this moralistic choice and it just sort of got into Aja's hands really fast. We, we had a producer who was Italian and he gave it to her and she loved it and gave it to her dad. And he called us up and he had read it on Halloween. Oh, wow. <laughs> and called us up on November 2nd to say, it's Dario. I love it. You know, and so we're on the phone having conversations with him and he's telling us how much he loves our script. And we're like, just losing it. All of a sudden, Jim and I think we are the coolest people on earth because we were working with John Carpenter. And Dario's going to do our movie. Like, we started just making it and found out what Italian filmmaking is. And it's it's bananas. <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of, you know, be that writer who says, I only work with horror legends. You yes, know? yes. Um, <laughs> Carpenter, Argento. So what was your experience? Like, you're now making a movie. You hinted to it. Uh, yeah. that, that, and, and, and I mean with both Argento and the process of making an Argento movie. Dealing with Dario was amazing. He yeah. is a delight. He is fun. He is funny. Um, when in person, communication with him is a piece of cake because he's so animated that, you know, you, just, you get whatever isn't being translated into English for you by body language. And he's marvelous at that. I, I actually can't wait to see him in uh, that Gaspard Noe flick because I know he can act. Yeah. Um, but uh, every bit of that was great until we got into casting. And then things went weird. Um, it was initially Asia Argento as the lead with Vincent Gallo mm. as the killer and Ray Liotta as the cop. And then Ray Liotta thought it was beneath him and quit. Vincent Gallo didn't want to share billing with Asia. Then Asia got pregnant. And so every one of those pieces fell apart in it while we were making it and then like rushing toward production. And so we sort of mostly, uh, Elsa Pataki and her boyfriend at the time was Adrian Brody. And he read the script and he's like, tell you what, if I get to play cop and killer, I'm in. And we're like, <laughs> why not? You know, like where we're already doing, it had already <laughs> gone from being uh, American sisters with an Italian cop to a Spanish and a French woman playing sisters with an American living in Italy. Like it had already turned so upside down Italian uh, in its production where I'm like, okay, now it's a meta Jallo. It's like, it's not a whodunit. It's who's playing the killer. Like, let's give you a fake name. Let's uh, pretend that you're someone else, which, you know, when you look like Adrian Brody is impossible. Um, <laughs> but but it became this uh, silly thing uh, where we created, you know, he created the the anagram of Byron Deidre 
to uh, name as the the killer um, when it came up in the credits. And so we had a lot of fun doing that, but it, it was a messy production. You know, the producers here were LA based, but French born sales agents who didn't always uh, spend money appropriately. There were elements that we literally lost two reels of 35 millimeter film to bad processing. And so the finale of the film isn't complete. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because you and I have spoken about this before and I, I love the movie. And one of the things I love about the movie, as I've told you, is I love how downbeat the ending is. You know, I don't want to spoil it for people who maybe who haven't seen it, but it ends in a very precarious place. And I always was like, yeah, that's wild. But for you, that ending's a little bittersweet because it's not the end. It is the end. There was more to it. We sort of put a finer point on it that maybe wasn't needed. I was not on set for, for production. I was here and did not see what was being changed about the script. So it was just a very weird experience watching it and then seeing the end going, oh, it didn't even end the way, you know. But uh, I and I haven't really gone back to watch it since, so I couldn't tell you if it uh, worked satisfyingly or not. I've heard that it is actually going to get a release again soon with, with oh. a new title for the American market called The Color of Fear. Um, hmm. Because... You know, give Americans a foreign title and they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, I have to say, I'm really glad that you had lovely things to say about Dario Argento because this is an episode of Midnight Mass called Idol Worship, Dario Argento. So if you had had a bad experience with him, it would have maybe been a little awkward. It sounds like making the movie was obviously challenging, yes. as most of us filmmakers can relate to, but I'm glad that you still love Dario Argento. And to me, he's just sort of, I don't know, like magic. And and uh, I've never met him. I've been up close to him before, like in the same space with him. Um, and he had a huge smile and was just very much like giving off good energy. So thank you for confirming for us that he is a good guy. Oh, he's the best. I, I love him so much. He really helped me as an artist just by his being because he made it okay to be indulgent. Like I would see interviews with him and he would talk about his art in a way that was so personal and weird that I felt safe to do that myself. I think mm -hmm. that, you know, having that that artistic view of horror as not being a, you know, cellar dweller genre, uh, that it actually is just as valid as any other, makes it sort of a beautiful expression of art, everything he does. And so I think it's something that more filmmakers should do is be a tad more indulgent. Yeah. You know, there's there's a fine line there, of course. But uh, especially when sort of nurturing your inner artist, he's a prime example. He does everything he can to nurture his inner artist at all times. He is super indulgent to his artist. And giving me permission to do so by doing that is his greatest gift. I mean, his cinema is fantastic, but his point of view on the world, I adore. Of course, his cinema is also broad, which we discussed before. There's there's a lot there. Uh, and in these idol worship episodes, one of the things we like to do is kind of look at the breadth of a person's work. So now, now that we've dug in a bit, let's let's have a little fun. And let's say for the sake of the conversation, excluding your film, looking through Argento's catalog, is there a movie of his that you feel like is underrated or doesn't get enough love? There's a couple of his later films that don't get enough love. And I specifically, I think Sleepless it's, you know, from the opening sort of train sequence is great. You know, Max von Sydow is always awesome on screen. It's a solid flick that gets lumped in with, oh, he didn't make anything good after opera, which 
is fallacious. He, uh, <laughs> Dario's still, I, I'm really looking forward to his new movie. I, I think he still has it in him to make good flicks because you don't forget that. Right. But I, that one in particular, um, Stendhal is pretty mean. The card player has its moments, but I think Sleepless is one that really stands out for me. I mean, one of the things that uh, I, I love about Dario Argento is, is similar to other auteurs that we celebrate on the podcast, which is that when they started, because they were so true to that artistic passion that you're describing, they were renegades. They were rebels. They were doing things that hadn't been done before because they were, you know, so if you look at John Waters, you look at, you know, Pedro Almodovar, um, these are filmmakers who in their home cities or countries, Baltimore, uh, Spain, um, Italy, you know, in their early stages of their career, those places were not proud of these filmmakers, did not want to celebrate them necessarily, but they stuck with it and built these audiences. And now all those same places put these people up on a pedestal. And so I'm wondering, since you experienced some of it, like, what is it like in Italy, you know, as far as the the way that Argento is seen or treated, you know, is it is it something where he's known I'm guessing he's not a household name, but they they all know his name. That's for sure. Um, he's yeah, he's 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 oh, a, really a, okay. sort of a, a the treasured little icon. Really. He's loved, quite loved now. But uh, like my writing partner was lucky to be on set the whole time. Um, he has a producing background, too. And so it was very helpful to have him there keeping an eye on stuff. Uh, but he was calling me nightly from their dinners because every night after shooting it's out to the same restaurant for dinner. like everyone within a certain five or ten block area of where most of the shooting was done in torino knows dario intimately because he likes to shoot in the same place over and over and stay in the same place over and over like so it isn't just the film community but it's like the waiters all know him. Uh, you know like <laughs> uh, it's 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 he you know the shopkeepers know him he's uh instantly identifiable in his uh elfin glory he's such a, a diminutive uh sweet dude and so he is clearly well known and well loved and his name draws earlier you mentioned working with john carpenter and one thing that carpenter and argento share i mean they share many things but w- w- the thing that i'm about to bring up is extremely well curated music in their films. Obviously, Argento mm. is most known for working with Goblin, but has worked with many other composers. Uh, as someone who is is very vested in the world of music yourself, I'm curious: Do you have a favorite Argento score? Ooh, um, I think it, it kind of goes with my favorite film of his. I think Tenebrae. The, the music is amazing too. I mean. Suspiria is super iconic, and I listen to the shit out of it around Halloween every year. But Tenebrae has a sort of jarring energy to it. The music really rollicks along in a way that uh, sort of gets all just prickling. It's got such little insectoid uh, ticking noises and and stuff like that. And I, I think it's fascinating. I really like Deep Red too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Profondo Rosso is a little bit more classical score sounding from them. But uh, I, I love the Galbum stuff. My greatest regret is I've worked with John Carpenter and with Dario Argento, and I did not get a John Carpenter or a Goblin score out of it. Uh, Marco Werba did the score to uh, to Jallo, and I can't even recall who did the ward. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't John. I'm like, oh, come on. These are like the greatest uh, horror <laughs> scores with directors ever, and I didn't get either one of them to land. <laughs> As you mentioned, we sometimes consider films that he produced wrong. I, you know, remember as a, as a young horror fan, 
you know, I, I, one time stupidly, I think in college, stuck my foot in my mouth when I said Demons is my favorite Argento movie. And someone was like, that's not a Dario Argento film. Um, so what what of the films that he's produced? I mean, my answer would be Demons, but, you know, that he didn't direct. Um, do, you, do you have a favorite of those? Definitely The Mountaintop. But The Church, La Quisea is so good, too. Um, that was uh, Michele Suave's flick. Um, and I think that one is, you know, as someone who grew up damaged by Catholicism, it really rings. Um, I love fucked up religious tales and uh, putting demons in churches and things like that just gives me uh, endless joy. And so, yeah, the church is, is way up there for me. And I can't remember if he carries a producer credit on it, but we cannot understate Argento's involvement in George Romero's Dawn of the Dead as well. I mean, those two together, that's another great union. Absolutely. That was definitely one that I wasn't aware so much of Argento's involvement in until much later. But hell yeah. I mean, that movie doesn't happen without him. You know, George, George wrote that in Rome, you know, hanging out with Dario. So that's, uh, that's great stuff. I have to ask this question because my mom loves when Peaches and I ask people this question in horror episodes because she's fascinated that this is something we're all interested in. And the question is favorite kill because my mom's like, you guys actually ask people that they have answers. I'm like, yeah, that's our genre. We have to explain to your mom, like, that's a that's a big thing in the world. That's totally normal, actually. But the thing is, is she loves it. Like, (laughs) She's not saying that like in an admonishing way. But Argento, of course... Is, is the master of complicated murder set pieces is what they're actually referred to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm even thinking some, some of the most gruesome moments in his don't even result in death. You know, the, the needles on the eyes in opera still skeeves me the fuck out. But do you have like one that sticks out for you in Peaches? I want to hear yours as well. Again, I keep on going back to Tenebrae, but the hand getting chopped off and the fan of blood on the white wall uh, is just gorgeously disgusting. It, the, the beauty, <laughs> the, and the attraction and repulsion there is so extreme. So it isn't actually the kill, it's the maiming that really does it for me there. Um, in, in four, I think it was uh, Four Flies and Grey Velvet, they're getting pushed in front of the train. They, they, like the close-up of the, the, the end of the train hitting the guy right in the temple. And I was, as a young kid, I, I was even aware of that one. Or not young kid, I guess a young writer. Uh, I'm like, how did you get that? How did you do that? I don't understand the mechanics of that shot and not murdering someone. <laughs> it's just, it's right. so gross and real looking. Um, so those are the two that pop out for me. Peaches, do you have a favorite kill? One memory I have, which is from a Midnight Mass, in-person Midnight Mass, where I did Suspiria. I wanted to somehow come crashing <laughs> through a window and enter the stage that way. So that might be the the moment from the film that I remember the most. And may, maybe that's my favorite. Also, the window scene where the arm comes through the window. I forget the character's name, but you know what I'm talking about, where she's, she's by the window. Anyway, so what we did was... Uh, we did like a ballyhoo with the spotlight and then you know it was kind of like a where's peaches christ where's peaches christ and the spotlight went up real quick to the the ceiling and it was sort of like a fake head (laughs) with a wig on it and then the lights went out and you heard all this like broken glass and i went out in the dark and the blackout and laid on the stage you know and then you heard like a big loud thud and the crew had put like sprinkled fake glass around me. So when the lights came up, it looked like I had landed dead on the stage. So I guess that that would be have to be my favorite. That's brilliant. Love that. What about you? One of my favorites actually is in a movie that doesn't get discussed very often. It's in the movie Card Player. Uh, in the movie, the killer has these sort of elaborate games that he's tricking the inspector into following. 
and there's a sequence at the end where they think that they're like breaking in to find a victim in this like shed. And when they've pushed the door open, the killer has rigged this like large weighted thing that swings down and hits the guy. And like, it's just the shock because you think at this point they won, it's done. I think that there's many, many kills in Argento films that are stunning and shocking. And like Sean said, how did they do that? It's hard as a horror fan to be legitimately shocked. And that one floored me because I was just like, there's no way they, they just did this to this guy. And it's like, boom. And then he's just kind of stuck there on the wall. And, you know, he's still alive in that like moment where it's just like, well, don't pull that out because he won't be. Oh, my God. I did have another question, Sean, that we tend to look at when we do these sort of auteur type episodes or idol worship episodes, which is what has the effect been of Argento on the world of pop culture and movies? And where do we see his his hand nowadays? Anytime you see beautiful people dying beautifully, you're seeing Argento's work. There you go. There are traces of his cinematic style in all kinds of films, like in Malignant. Yes, there are traces of his style. There is the black glove trench coat killer kind of vibe uh, that you also see John Doe as in Seven in a sequence. Like down at the end of the hall, he has the hat on, the gloves. He looks exactly like mm. a Jallo killer in a twisty whodunit that could have very well have been an Italian film. Right. And so... Anytime you see those, you, you're getting that. But I think the greatest thing is you get surrealism brought slightly into the mainstream. I don't think Dario has ever been completely huge mainstream. I know Suspiria was a pretty big hit um, in America, but most of his stuff is still sort of tangential and on the fringes. But it is inspiring to so many young filmmakers who come to and just young horror fans who come to it every year and discover him every year and realize oh i don't need logic i don't need rules i can go for the gut i think something about dario is he feels like he's almost perpetually childlike in his fear it's like the fears that he had as a little kid never left him and he can tap into that in a way that resonates with all of us you know you get those childhood fears of the long dark hallway of grandma's place that's out it's sort of off kilter and old um i think that's the echo that you get is is that embracing of surrealism uh the embracing of feeling over logic that's that's dario that's a brilliant summation of of his contributions to pop culture sean I know you're always up to something. Uh, in the intro, I listed all these many facets of your career. What's up now? What are you working on? What can you tell us about? I don't really have anything that I can talk about, but I'm making some stuff right now. I'm making a, a heavy metal horror movie right now. So we'll see where that goes. But um, definitely uh, inspired by my love of growing up in the 80s and being drawn to Creepers because of its heavy metal score. Like, uh, I've always wanted to do something in that realm, and I'm doing one now, and that's hopefully going to be quite fun. We can uh, make it real. That's definitely, Sean, right up the Midnight Mass alley. So <laughs> it's up Sean, our Midnight thank Mass. thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. The fantastic Sean Keller. And what a great guest. I'm so glad. Once again, Michael, uh, leave it to you to have a friend in the industry who's actually worked firsthand with an auteur like Dario Argento. You know, it was so great because it's that thing where you can work with someone, still be a fan, still have a fan experience, and also create a project together. 
Yeah. And I, I love Sean's insight, not only to the process of them making their own movie, but how he looks at Argento's work as a whole and, and continues to be inspired by it as an artist himself. One of the things I did not bring up, because I didn't want to get too deep into it, but Sean, of course, is part of a more modern Argento. I think a lot of us probably think of Dario Argento's heyday as being, you know, well, the 70s, really, yeah. late 60s, 70s, early 80s maybe. Really, the only really truly strikingly memorable thing that happened to me when I attended the Cannes Film Festival was this. I got to go to the red carpet Cannes Film Festival premiere of Dario Argento's Dracula 3D. And of course, it's the Cannes Film Festival and it's fucking Dario Argento. So everyone is so excited and it's in 3D. You know, and they're going to screen it in 3D, of course. And I'm wearing a tuxedo on the red carpet with David Gregory, you know, from Severin oh. Films and Bobby Barber, who produced All About Evil and the late, great Louis Tice. Oh, and, Louis. Yeah, and all four of us were there for this premiere. Well, when you go to those can screenings, it's in this huge auditorium. So we get to our seats and I think Dario is going to be a million miles away. Oh, no, he walks right down the aisle, right next to me with Asia you know, his daughter who's in the movie and they sit just like kind of across the aisle. But I was like right next to them. And it was just so cool and so exciting. And part of being a can is to act like you don't care, you know, that they're that they're there. But I wasn't acting like that. I was just like, oh, my God, there they are. There they are. And then the movie starts. And I actually had fun with the movie. But, you know, fans did not love it. I'll just say that. And one of the things I thought was so weird and maybe so European, I guess, or maybe so Italian was how naked and sexual Asia was in the movie that her father directed, you know? And like, I was sitting there kind of watching it and also with them just being like 20 feet away from me, I was kind of like, wait, you made this and you're doing this in front of your dad and now you're watching it with your dad? Yeah, Yeah. weird. I probably sound like a Puritan, don't I? Well, I mean, yeah. I am. I'm still that fucked up Catholic trash who's still, you know what? Good, good. I'm glad her dad directed her to be naked and fuck <laughs> people. That, I, I, well, this just goes back to the bucking of tradition. Now, you know, <laughs> that, that your ire was raised. Argento wins again. Um, yes, yes. But no, you're right. I think this is something that many folks have pointed out because Asia has appeared in a number of, of Dario's films, including Trauma and uh, Stendhal syndrome, and usually always as an afflicted or put upon (laughs) woman. So I think that's their own in-house stuff they got to work out, whatever is going on there. But it's not in-house. No, it's not. It's it's, it's on the big screen. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And they're sitting there watching it with us. Well, I will say that I was traumatized when I met uh, Dario Argento. I was not as playing it cool as you were. I freely admit Um, we met at a uh, horror convention in New Jersey. I was there with Ultraviolet Magazine and Dario happened to be there and I got to meet him. He was wearing a sweater because he thought New Jersey was cold and he was probably right. We had a lovely conversation about a, a, a spaghetti Western that he wrote that he never talks about. Although I don't really seek autographs all that often, like when am I going to meet Dario Argento again? I, at the time, I thought. So I uh, had him sign a few things, including a poster for a movie that he did called Two Evil Eyes, which was a uh, anthology film that he directed a segment of and George Romero directed a segment of. And it's uh, Edgar Allan Poe stories. And several years later, I was out and about and I got an opportunity to meet George Romero. And of course, when you get the opportunity to meet George Romero, you take it. And of course. I'm also like, I have this poster that he did 
with Argento. So I have to, like, why? So I took it to have Romero sign it. And Romero was so shocked that I had gotten Argento to sign something that that's all he wanted to talk about. He was just like, <laughs> how did you meet Dario? And I was like trying to explain it. I'm like, well, like it was a horror convention. Like, you know, you do those. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, he signed this for you. I'm like, well, that's a signature. And I just, I just <laughs> remember like how cute it was that like, Romero was like wrapping his mind around that we're here in the U.S. and his friend is in Italy. And how would I have I this plebeian ever have met him? You know, right? Right. Um, right. But I love that uh, I I got to have an extended conversation with Romero about Argento because eventually it evolved into uh, Romero expressing to me how much he admired Dario Argento and how much wow. they're you know because they worked together on Dawn of the Dead and again on this movie. And he kept returning to him because he was an artist who he viewed as a peer, but also inspired him. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring that story up in this episode, not to just talk about the fact that I I was lucky enough to cross paths with them, but it shows how artists influence each other. And for someone as pivotal as George Romero to sit and praise Dario Argento speaks to Argento's impact. I get it, Michael. I'm personally not one to name drop the way that you are i mean i i don't i don't go on and on about meeting george romero or dario argento heather run the clip show (laughs) (laughs) It, it is relevant to this episode i think i think the fans deserve to know that you've met these two auteurs especially because we're going to discuss actually both of them in our next interview we 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 of course are discussing argento with our next guest but we also bring up george romero and maybe even a few other directors. Our next guest is a fabulous comic book author and someone who actually has a connection to Argento in a very unique way. And we're going to talk to her, Abby Denson, right now. Welcome back, listeners. Of course, you can't have a cult figure without the cult who worships them. And luckily, we're joined not only by an avowed fan of Dario Argento, but our next guest has not only lent her immeasurable writing abilities to such comics as The Amazing Spider-Man Family, Josie and the Pussycats, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, but is the author of the award-winning graphic novel Daltopia and the acclaimed coming out story Tough Love, High School Confidential. She's also written a number of celebrated travel books, including Cool Japan Guide, Cool Tokyo Guide, and Uniquely Japan. As if this weren't enough, a project of hers that is very near and dear to the Midnight Mass cause is her graphic novel, Kitty Sweet Tooth, about an adorable kitty who inherits an independent movie theater that serves up treats, both tasty and cinematic, to patrons. Please welcome author and sensation, Abby Denson. Welcome, Abby. Hello, thank you, and thanks for the amazing introduction. Always amazing. Oh, Every thank time. you, thank you. Uh, so I want to start not necessarily with your Argento origins. We'll get back to that. But one of the things that uh, I wanted to talk to you about is that you met one of your comic book collaborators at a Suspiria-themed bar in Japan. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's true. And that's one of the reasons I felt like I could definitely speak to this topic, um, because I feel like 
even though I might not have my walls plastered in Argento posters, I feel that he as a director has a directly or indirectly affected my actual life and artistic output because of this occurrence. But uh, as you mentioned, I've written many books about Japan and I traveled every year and have friends there. And I heard that there was a Suspiria themed bar and in 2013, I went, it's called Cambiare and it's really more like the decor and the font on the sign. And it's just, it's in Golden Guy, which is a series of alleys that has these really tiny kind of little bars where there can be themed bars. And a lot of times they can't even fit more than like 10 people. So it's extremely intimate. I went there with some friends and uh, ended up meeting people who were hanging out there who were really friendly. And Udo Maru, who's the artist, who eventually became the artist of Kitty Sweet Tooth. She's an incredible artist. She just happened to be there that night and we met and we hit it off. And along with various other cool people I met there who I'm still friends with, we kind of kept in touch online through Facebook and stuff. And eventually I got to the point where I wanted to make this Kitty Sweet Tooth book, but I wanted to do it with a collaboration with another artist because typically I would draw my own books. And she was kind of like my ideal person. We ended up being able to create something really amazing and it's two books. So Kitty Sweet Tooth makes a movie. She's going to become a director. It's going to come out this fall. (laughs) Oh, oh, wow. Congratulations. So that'll be in October. It's just been this really amazing journey and it's kind of funny for me to think these movies that came out in the 70s that I saw probably started watching maybe late 90s, early 2000s, kind of resulted here where I have a book out that wouldn't have even happened if that didn't happen. And it's kind of funny when you like trace back the things, the creative things that can inspire you in life. And it wouldn't have even occurred to you that this would happen. And that you, again, like it is a children's book. So people might be like, well, how did this happen? Well, I met her. I was at a bar in Tokyo. Is this a spirit theme bar in Tokyo? What better way to start our conversation than to talk about the roundabout way that Dario Argento helped create a children's book. And, you know, if it weren't for Argento, maybe the two of you wouldn't have, have met and had this incredible collaboration you know, you were so kind to send us the book, um, which I have actually a nephew who I'm so excited to uh, share the book with. Um, And uh, I do think the listeners who either have kids or or have kids in their life should definitely check out the book. Um, We're three Americans, and this is an idol worship episode dedicated to someone very Italian uh, whose work, you know, is not American at all. Um, it's really not Hollywood at all. And the fact that you got to experience his fandom being celebrated in Japan is really interesting to me. And so I'm wondering, were people going to the bar because they understood what the theme was? Or was the theme sort of incidental? Does that make sense? Like, do you think that it attracted Suspiria fans? Yes, definitely. Ah. And uh, one of the cool things was they had the wallpaper in Olga's bedroom. And Ah. I'm going to talk about, I mean, when we talk about the movies more, I'll get into that. But the wallpaper was one of the design themes. They had the window look like uh, the roof window that got smashed through in the beginning. They are always playing 70s or, you know, 
horror or horror adjacent type of movies. Well, the few times I've been, obviously, I can only go, I've probably gone like a few times over the times I've been going to Japan, but I've been several times. Usually I would try to go every time I visit Tokyo uh, over the past several years. I sent some pictures, which uh, you might talk about later, but uh, you know the blue iris on the wall that secretly opens a door in Suspiria? Yes. They had that on the doorknob. Your pictures were great. So, so, you know, thank you for sending those. And for our Patreon listeners, for our Patreon (laughs) subscribers, that's just one of the delicious morsels uh, that we'll be posting over on our Patreon, our our Abby's pictures from the bar itself, because it, it is pretty cool. I mean, it's a Suspiria themed bar in Tokyo. So thank you for sharing those. There are certain things about Suspiria, I guess, going into it design-wise, when you just, even the font, when you see the credits, like it makes me feel excited (laughs) to see that design elements all coming together in that way. It's interesting. So from meeting in this bar and the artistic endeavor that followed, let's take it back. When did you first discover Argento? When did you really connect with his work? I didn't even get into watching horror movies till I was in college. Uh, My entry ones where I started getting into it was Evil Dead 2 definitely kind of brought me in where I was like, oh, okay, I see this and I can get into this and where is more like this? Because I found basically the kind of horror movie I liked and then I was able to kind of enter into it. But I had been hearing, you know, and reading horror message boards and blogs and stuff and I had been hearing about Suspiria. Eventually I got the chance to watch it on home DVD probably. Even from watching it on a small screen, from the opening scenes, like I was saying, the font and the music, the color schemes, Like I'm extremely inspired by and influenced by bright colors. Like I love psychedelic cinema color. So I was really impressed with just how it all came together. And I love witches too, my whole life. That's something from when I was a kid, I always was really intrigued by stories with witches. So my my favorite books as a kid always had witches or witch themes and I just loved it and I still do. So just the fact that it had like a witch storyline and also you had Jessica Harper. Now I had been a Rocky Horror kid and I had seen Shock Treatment a bunch of times. I just love her. I was enraptured by the, the sound and the visuals and you know, the intrigue of the story, though I always felt like I wanted to know more about what was going on with the story because he doesn't really give you very much. Also the wallpaper, and it is funny, but I I really love the wallpaper in Olga's room and the blue velvet wallpaper, the stairway with the um, sort of spiral, almost looking kind of overlapping gold points. Like it's a lot of weird interior decor. I think it's the first time it really blew me away in a movie seeing sets like that. I think that you're right and really calling out the visual uniqueness of his films, specifically, obviously, with Suspiria, but like Suspiria isn't alone in that, you know, opera, tenebrae, phenomena, um, the mother of tears, the bird with the crystal plumage, all of those films have a really distinct and dynamic, like visual style. I agree that Suspiria is my favorite, probably because I love Jessica Harper and the witches and the music. And I almost feel like it's not cool if you're like hardcore cult to say that Suspiria is your favorite, which, you know, whatever, maybe I'm not cool, but I just love Suspiria. It was my entrance. I was thinking while you were talking about it and I was like, my other favorite foreign auteur, you know, foreign being, uh, you know, from the American's per- perspective, you know, one would be Argento and, and my other favorite would be Pedro Almodovar. And when you look at those two, they both have 
such a unique vision for color, for wallpaper, window treatments, whatever. Their films are such visual treats. And I never made that connection before until you were talking. We get it a little bit more now, I think, from American filmmakers who have been inspired by those two and other, you know, other European filmmakers. That was just an interesting connection I'd never made. But I do think there is a connection there because both of those filmmakers, you go back and you look at those movies and they're literally just dripping with color and design and everything's considered. The movie posters are fabulous. You know, the music is fabulous. That's a good point, I think, to bring out that that this filmmaker has had this be part of their, you know, vision for a long time. We did talk with our other guests about the color of blood, but I actually really love that the color of blood is so ridiculous looking. It fits in with the wallpaper, you know. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I, I did um, refresh myself on some documentaries that I had in my discs and stuff. And he had said, I guess, that he was really inspired by Snow White, the Disney Ah. Um, movie for um, colors and some of the visuals, which is kind of funny because then I'm like, well, I guess it's not that funny that my children's book was inspired by Suspiria if he was inspired by Snow White. I also love that they have a lot of foregrounded female characters in my favorite Argento movies. And I don't, you know, I want to say Daria Nicolodi is like amazing. And, and I'm, my understanding is she like come up with a story with him. You know, there was a collaboration on this one. I feel like the movies that he did that she is involved in, um, especially like more involved in are usually the ones that I'm more into. So I think I like her touch, you know. I'm so glad that you brought Daria Nicolodi up because when we look back at some of the other idol worship episodes that we did, specifically, I'm thinking of John Carpenter. We talked about the symbiosis between Deborah Hill and John Carpenter and how together they really fostered a vision that wouldn't have worked without both of them, although he tends to get more of the credit because misogyny, because Hollywood, because whatever. And in, in, a very similar, but albeit different way, because their styles are so different. When you go across to Italy and you see what Argento is doing with his then wife, Daria Nicolodi, she creates the story for Suspiria. She's in a lot of his movies. And I don't feel like we got a chance to, well, we didn't talk about her at all with our other guests. So I think it's really significant um, that you bring her up because her contribution is so present. For anyone who doesn't know, she's also the mother of Asia. We did briefly bring up Asia Argento, but it's worth noting that this is Asia's mother. And so they were obviously a couple. They had children. Also, she starred in the movies, which I think most people kind of knew at the time because she's so stunning. That's the other thing. Like, She's so striking, you know, in this sort of uh, gorgeous Italian, like Sophia Loren beauty, you know, just so gorgeous. But you're right. She was behind the scenes. She helped develop the stories. Um, and I didn't know that until I was reading more, getting ready for this episode as well. And it, it kind of hit me over the head, like, this is something that we need to talk about more. So thank you for bringing it up, because it's like, when we did the John Carpenter episode, it's like so clear that Deborah Hill's contributions now are really being brought to light, where she was a major player, a producer who helped him get those films to the screen. And so I think Nickelodeon in many ways isn't given enough credit. I'm thinking because she also is in front of the camera in a way that Deborah Hill was not. We True. also can can look to her in a different way. Do you, Abby, have a favorite performance of hers in, in Argento's films? 
I think a deep red for sure, just because I feel like she was most um, foregrounded in that movie and she was so charming. Her character is so funny. I just really loved her <laughs> in that. <laughs> yeah. Though my other two favorites, which uh, are like Inferno and Creepers or Phenomena, are also the more fairy tale like tales that he's done, even though they definitely all have plenty of bloodshed and violence. There is like a surreal fairy tale with like a curious female um, protagonists in all of them. Though Inferno has like many <laughs> protagonists kind of going one to the other. But uh, I thought that was interesting because another one of my favorite movies that is very much similar uh, in tone in some ways to Suspiria, but it's a more absurd. But you know the Japanese movie Haosu? Yes. Yeah, so that's like an all-time favorite for me too. And I've got, I didn't get to see it till much later because it didn't come around here till much later. But I was like, this is so much in that vein to me of like, but Suspiria is only it's more in the comedy realm, but it's still like there are, you know, curious girls in this situation. There's this witch house and it can get really violent. They have a, a sort of similar dream or fantasy fairy tale logic where it doesn't even really matter that it doesn't have to make sense. It's like you're enjoying the experience. You're making all these connections that I never, ever considered. And that actually kind of brings back the, you know, we're, we're circling back to where we began, where I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally true. In many ways, Argento, I do not think is, is a great example of Italian cinema necessarily. Partly because it's so, well, maybe he is, maybe he is, because if you think about Fellini, there are these fantastical elements. There are these sort of surrealist, maybe Argento is this sort of Italian horror filmmaker that I didn't realize that Japanese sort of the strangeness, the wildness, the sort of imagination gone crazy, which I think Halsu totally embodies that there is a connection there and that it would make sense that Argento films would play well in Japan. You know, when you look at Japanese films, I'd never considered that, but that fantastic element that you're talking about is actually what I love about his films as well. My real love affair with Freddy Krueger had everything to do with the fantasy, that it, it, it was it was horror that embraced fantasy and Argento certainly has done that. I mean, it doesn't get more fantastic than Snow White and witches, right? So, yeah. you know, yeah, there, there is this sort of fantasy and and they live in a world where you don't you don't necessarily get answers. You just sort of accept that, okay, this is the weird world that we're living in where these things can happen. I know that Suspiria is part of a trilogy, a mother's trilogy, but I can't remember what the other, what technically are the other films in the trilogy. You know, are they all fantastic? I'll let Abby take this. Okay. Okay, so you have Suspiria, Inferno, and Mother of Tears. Mother of Tears. Oh, that's what I thought. Okay. Which came way later. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get the same fantastical feeling from Mother of Tears. <laughs> But, I don't uh, think you know. any of us did. Well, I think because Mother of Tears <laughs> didn't have the same fantastical budget. When you, <laughs> yeah, no. that could be it. <laughs> because you you talked about the set pieces and the design of Suspiria, but let's talk about Inferno. That he floods mm -hmm. that ballroom. I mean, yeah. that. <laughs> do you is do you have an affinity for the design of that movie the same way you like Suspiria, or is it a little different? Oh yeah, uh, I definitely do. Though I feel like. Um, and I, like, I'm a New Yorker, I love New York. So I, I don't think it was really much of it if any was shot in New York. But I like that it's supposed to be in New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Part of it. But yeah, I do really like how they use the colors. They light the actors really gorgeous. The buildings are very mysterious. Um, that set piece in the um, the flooded under 
water ball, ballroom scene is extremely impressive. And it's very scary. And then when you watch it, it's actually like nothing, like, I, I guess, I suppose it's not spoiling anything to say, <laughs> but when the actress goes in and then like a, a corpse sort of surprisingly shows up and bumps her, it's like scary. But then after seeing it a few times, I'm like, well, that isn't actually like a scene where anyone's in real danger yet in this movie. It just happened to be that a corpse bumped in her, but it, it was scary. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm sure that speaks to some primal fear of some folks, though. None of us want that to happen to us, for sure, for sure. <laughs> One thing is, though, I, I don't really love about older horror movies, and it's like, I love animals. I don't like animal um, harm in movies generally. There's a whole scene that was sort of funny when you look back on it, where the um, antique dealer, he's frustrated by the cats, which are apparently sort of in league with the witch that runs the building. <laughs> She's a crazy cat lady. So he uh, wants to drown these cats, which I'm always boo on that. So he goes to try to do that, <laughs> but then he falls over for no apparent reason at all, gets bitten to death by rats, screams for help. There's a lunar eclipse. And then for no reason at all, a uh, guy starts running from a food truck, maybe a hot dog truck, and just chops his head off. <laughs> okay, I knew you were, I knew you were where you were going when you brought up the animal stuff. And I have to say, my film All About Evil had a scene in the original draft where Mink Stoll was bit to death. There was a whole rat storyline in the original film, but we couldn't afford the rats. You know, I was wow. talked out of it by the other producers. Then they, they said, if we do this CGI, it's going to look like shit. And I said, no, 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 they have to be real rats. And Mink has survived worse, you know? So like, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Basically, I, I was told no. It was one of the few things, <laughs> I, one of the, there, was, there were two or three main things I was told no about. Most mostly for budget reasons. But it wasn't until years later where I saw Inferno like at a screening and I hadn't seen it for a while. And I was like, oh my God, that's where I got that from. Like these things make an imprint on you as a kid. And it's weird how these little things Speaking of Argento, a lot of demons made its way into All About Evil, like way more than I realized, you know, until I rewatched Demons oh, years yeah, later. Demons is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I always want to talk about, but I, I think it's maybe not as appropriate because he didn't direct it. But it definitely is of the Argento universe. And it's definitely Argento who led me to Demons in a lot of these other movies that he he produced and, and finding out about Mario Bava and all these other, you know, Fulci and the filmmakers that we all kind of, Argento is sort of our gateway drug, right? But yeah, so Inferno, I think also is, is another one that just, it is really surreal, you know, in its beauty. And like you say, like it has that sort of design. And I, I do wonder if, if they had shot it in actual New York City, I don't think it would have looked as interesting, even though it doesn't look New York. So as a New York girl, you're watching something like Inferno. Do you ever buy that it's New York? Never really, right? I thought that that scene where he was getting bitten death by rats, like it was in New York. <laughs> um, it was though, yeah. uh, not, not to like say anything bad about New York, but I again, I was watching my commentary or like an interview and I guess what they did is they superimposed a New York background there. So I actually okay. was thinking it could have been I don't know, like the Central Park Pond or something. <laughs> right. I thought, oh, maybe they did that. But no, I guess they did superimpose um, New York background now, there. So it was sort of New York. As a New Yorker, I have to ask, have you been bitten by a rat? No, no, never. This is a, one of those diversions that Michael's going to read me about later. Can I tell I'm going to read you about it right now. Can I tell you, <laughs> can I, can I tell you that the craziest rat story that's so Argento involving New York City? And I, hopefully I won't get in trouble. 
So <laughs> Lady Bunny was doing an interview and I guess she answered the phone while she was on the toilet, if you know what I mean. So she answers the phone and kind of like finishes whatever she's doing, gets up, walks away and finishes her interview. Anybody who's listening to this who knows Lady Bunny, do not tell her I shared this on the podcast. (laughs) And then she hears some noise, some commotion in her bathroom. And she goes into her bathroom to see a giant rat eating her turd. Wow. Yeah. She screams, shuts the lid to the toilet, finally flushes, because she didn't flush before because she was doing a radio interview or whatever, flushes the rat down the toilet. I think the rat had come up through the, you know, through the pipes to eat her turd. Wow, that's quite a tale. Yeah. Yes. And now, as my job is want to do, I'm going to have to segue us back to Argento. But from killer rats to the mother of queers, Lady Bunny. Speaking of witches... I mean, it's all, yeah, it all, it all makes sense to me. So one of the things, Abby, I I wanted to uh, pick back up on because back at the beginning, when you were talking about Suspiria, you talked about how, well, let's face it. Dario's sort of a withholding father, right? He never gives us everything that we want. And that's part of the (laughs) magic. And so you said, when you, when you think of Suspiria, you, you almost wish there was more. But then when you're talking about this murder sequence that you love in Inferno, a phrase you used several times was, for no reason. This happens for no reason. <laughs> so with that in mind, we've addressed this a little bit already, but the dream logic, the incomprehensible elements, the house of it all, mm. is that really what makes the DNA of Argento work, do you think? I think so. I mean, I really enjoy when I don't know where a movie's going to take me. And um I think that's probably part of being into movies and if you've seen so many of them and also being writer as like, I'm sure both of you, you know, being creators. I think that when you are a creator and you see a lot of material, you know what's going to happen a lot of the time because a lot of the material or like standard horror movies that come out, like there are tropes and you kind of know how it's going to end or you kind of know what's going to happen next. So I like, highly value if I don't know what's going to happen next. Even if there's a movie that I didn't think it was good in too many other ways, if I'm like, well, I really did not expect that. Well, it gave me something, you know? This is a movie I really love, but also I think is an example of like, it just kind of layers things on top of each other, which is Gremlins 2. It's one of my favorite movies because (laughs) it just keeps on adding more and more craziness and um, aspects to the story that I wouldn't have expected. And there's not really any kind of particular reason for it, but it's just the sheer joy of let's make all these kind of gremlins and make them do this, you know, and I love that. And that was shot in New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Dante didn't agree to do gremlins until they said he could do whatever he wanted. And that's what you see. And again, maybe this goes back to European filmmakers. The studio system often doesn't allow for that. Joe Dante was in a position to demand it because he had made this huge hit and they were begging him to come back to do the sequel. And so he got this sort of carte blanche, which very few people get, you know, to do whatever he wanted. And then you get kind of see this pure what the fuckery that makes the movie (laughs) so wonderful, right? Like that nobody would have agreed to. And I think with Argento, you can see throughout the course of his career, even his films that people don't like, you know, especially the later films where fans are maybe disappointed or frustrated, they still have that element of like, I do what I want. (laughs) And, And this is what I wanted to do. And you do not get the sense that there's a team of people pulling the string 
strings of Dario Argento. Well, that's another thing I really like because I'd say like three movies or kind of filmmakers that have been really influential to me as a creator or who I find inspirational. One's like, I would just say Rocky Horror, which is a movie and there's a lot going on around that. But then I would say, you know, Dario Argento and John Waters, I mean, he, I know, is a big influence on everybody here, are a big inspiration. Who? I've never John heard. I've never heard. Oh, okay. I have to look so, him up. But he, I love all his books. I love his movies. He introduced me, his books, introduced me a lot of other favorite movies. What I find so fascinating about him is that nobody was asking him to make the movies, nobody was paying him to make the movies that he did. He had to do it. He had the force inside him that was like, I want to tell the story. I got to do it. And then he just made it happen with his friends who believed in him to do it. And I feel like that's extremely inspirational. Mm-hmm. And I feel that feeling also with Argento. And again, I watched a couple of interviews coming up to this and he and John Waters both said some kind of similar things that I read. They both said if they didn't make movies, they didn't know what would have happened to them, if they might have ended up in jail or what what happened to their lives. So I feel like it's almost like there's a compulsion to create, like you almost don't have a choice, like it's coming out of you and you need to make it. Otherwise you might, you know, end up a broken person because you aren't able to make the thing you want to make. And the fact that they, through their force of will and getting other people on board with them, were able to make a thing that inspires all these others is like really fascinating to me. And I can relate in a much smaller way where about making comics because I started out self-publishing and making zines and mini comics. And it was just that similar thing where like no one's asking you to do it. You're inspired to make a thing and you just make it. And it's a lot easier with a comic because you can sit and draw it. These days you can put it online, but back then, you know, we were making zines and photocopying and I felt like I couldn't help myself. I had to mail it to all these people. And it, it like I mailed it to all the comic people I liked who I didn't know them when I look back on it. That like 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, crazy to think, was when I did my first comic. And I just mailed it to like so many people. I couldn't help myself. I was like, everyone needs to see this thing I made. It's a pure drive that's just yeah. within you. And obviously Michael and I can relate because, you know, what we do individually is so, again, no one asked for a Peaches Christ or, you know, any of the things that I've done. But doing it, I found my tribe, as RuPaul would say, you know, you got to kind of go out and find your tribe. And obviously Dario Argento and John Waters are excellent examples of that. And I think bringing that up is really an interesting point for for a number of reasons. One is we've already talked about one of his collaborations that we all love, which is Demons. We have not yet discussed one of the great collaborations, which was when he did Dawn of the Dead with George Romero. You know, everyone associates George Romero with Dawn of the Dead, but not necessarily Argento, but Argento did collaborate with George Romero on that film. And it made me think like, well, that was Pennsylvania. And obviously Romero falls into that camp as well, the way you were describing these filmmakers. Romero certainly is qualified working outside of the studio system, doing his own thing. Then I thought, what if fucking Argento had gone to Baltimore after that? (laughs) What would that like? Or what if Argento had worked with John on Serial Mom? You know, maybe it would have been a lot, you know, sort of darker. I mean, Serial Mom in many ways is kind of, kind of giallo, you know. (laughs) Oh yeah, I love that movie too. When I think about that time and making those comics, like I'm still friends with people I met through that. Like some of my closest friends and pretty much whatever I'm doing writing wise is generated from that. But it's like, you wouldn't think I printed this thing out that long ago. 
because I couldn't help myself because I had it just kind of pouring forth from me and like a fire behind me said, you have to make the thing and you have to show it to as many people as possible. And it's not an experience everyone has. Well, yeah. you, you also have had the experience and I know Michael's had it too, where you do a gig like we all have, where there is someone telling you what to do. Oh yeah, And it is a very, <laughs> very different experience. It <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah. What I love about the trajectory of this conversation is we went from the kind of core of what we could have talked about with Dario Argento and, more, and went more existential with what we can sort of learn by the example he sets. And you you just sat and spoke to how he, in this parallel with John Waters and how they both find beauty and grotesquerie and that forced them to make their own art. And that's something that all artists who have that in them, they just need to create. It brings me to a, a version of a question that I like to ask every guest, because you, you spoke to this in, in a lot of ways, talking about how it reminded you of your own trajectory. But from when you first discovered his work to now and having that intermediary moment of meeting someone in a Suspiria bar and knowing what the lessons you learned that you just spoke to, has your relationship with his work changed over the years at all? Or I just have learned a lot more about him and about the movies and the background because I feel like because there's such a mystery, especially when you initially are introduced to Suspiria, and I felt like I really needed to know more. And Back then, it was harder to get to know more than you can than now, right? So I've gotten to see most of his movies and, you know, found which ones I most related to or was interested in. But I don't think that, like, my opinion on them had, like, wavered or, like, too much where I'm like, yeah, this is not as great as I thought it was. I don't think that happened to me. <laughs> and I should mention, too, like, after I first saw it on uh, Suspiria you know, a home video, every time it came to town on a big screen, which occasionally would happen, sometimes they'd show it at repertory theaters. I would always try to go and seeing it on the big screen. And then whenever I saw that wallpaper, I was like, oh, <laughs> on the big screen. Here's a nerdy question. Do we know yet if the wallpaper is available for sale? You know how you can buy the shining carpet everywhere now? Has someone done that yet? Maybe we need a listener to design that wallpaper or at least gift wrap, you know, something. <laughs> you can get the stained glass, but I've never oh. seen the wallpaper. Yeah. I didn't get the chance to ask our other guests this. And so I wanted to ask you, especially because we've spoken so much about Suspiria. And I think you and I especially have been very upfront with the fact that Suspiria is, you know, the really important film for us, or it's maybe the most important. What did you think of the remake, both of you, and and I'll answer as well because we haven't we haven't talked about it yet. I quite like the remake. I think it's a very different experience. The truth is, the original Suspiria is like a tight ninety minutes, and the remake is two and a half hours long. There's two Suspirias in the in the course of the remake, but I think that there are two versions of the same nightmare. You know, when you look at the original, it's got all of that technicolor, larger-than-life surrealism. And this version, the, the Luca Guadagnino version, is very gray. It's, it's the very cold yeah. world in the winter. And I think that he, he presented a different version. It's the fairy tale. Fairy tales are oral tradition. They're stories. And when they're passed on through different cultures and through different people, they change. He told the fairy tale in a different way. And the one thing that I, I do really, really appreciate about his version that I didn't feel like we got enough of in Argento's, which I do consider to be a perfect film, but it's a school for ballet and we see very little ballet. 
And Guadagnino at least made sure to make the dance part of the story and a horrific part of the story. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I can't be mad at it as a remake. I think it gets like really kind of wonky in the third act, but everything that leads up to it is is good for me. So I think I can agree with most of what you're saying. Like I, I'm, I'm also not really a hater generally about stuff like with remakes, even though I knew like, had been hearing it was going to be remade and I was like I don't know but I liked it more than I thought I would I saw it in the theater um I love Tilda Swinton like the performances I thought were awesome also like I mentioned before I love witches and one of the things I felt like I was missing in the original Suspiria is like what's up with these witches like I want to know what their deal is and I really got to know more and see more of them on screen doing things and kind of getting more of an idea of like what their deal was then where in the original spirit, it's very much totally veiled in mystery. You just know they're causing dark things to happen to people. But uh, I felt like in the remake, there was a lot more just kind of showing them interacting and how their household worked. And to me, I really liked seeing more of that. And again, Tilda Swindon was so awesome. Like I felt like she totally uh, was fascinating to me. I feel like I could watch her just doing anything and I liked it, but not as much as the original. And I agree it was too long, but most of these movies that are like over two hours, like I really don't like the trend of the movies being so long these days. I'm totally on the same page with both of you. I I loved it in many, many ways. Uh, I look at it as a as its own movie, a different movie. And I do look at it as another version of the fairy tale. And I think like seeing it as a fairy tale is a great way to kind of couch it. Cause it's like, oh yeah, that is, that is why it, 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 but I thought it was well done. And I think that my criticisms would be trivial. I thought that that first dance kill was one of the most impressive things, most disturbing, wildest, most imaginative horror scenes I've seen in forever. And I thought the, the the orgiastic finale was wonderful. I also thought that the film was maybe even more feminist than anything Argento ever made. Like it was more upfront about like, this is about women. And, you know, obviously with the casting and the way that they made the movie. In fact, that was maybe one of my trivial little little criticisms was like, I I found Tom York's voice to be distracting. And I kind of felt like, why wouldn't you get Bjork or, you know, Diamanda Galas or someone who, you know, someone who could give it that haunting energy that Tom York is, but, but it should have been a feminine energy. I would love to hear a Diamanda Galas or Bjork version of that soundtrack. Right. (laughs) I thought the movie was amazing. So my criticisms are very small, but I'm like, why not go all the way? Like every time Tom York came on, I was like, eh. And I love Tom York. I'm a big Radiohead fan. But it is particularly curious because, you know, one of the things about this version is that there really are no men. Even the one male character is played by Tilda Swinton in drag. And I think that- yes. uh, Another little criticism I have. I love Tilda Swinton. Love, love, love her. But I didn't buy it. And I kept thinking, why? I mean- I mean, Murray Hill, like some butch, Leah Delaria, like someone who's a woman, but who's already like got that. I mean, I know Tilda is androgynous. You didn't buy Tilda going full Eddie Murphy and then Eddie Professor playing like 13. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't. And I love her. But every time she was there as the old man, I was kind of like, I don't know. I loved her old man. (laughs) So anyway, we have derailed. Abby. We did, but what, we had to talk. <laughs> we had to, t- the some point on this podcast, 
it was we had to address up. the remake. I mean, that, yeah, that's, sure, there's sure. no no way that we could have fit, put this podcast out and not talked about it. So, Abby, you had mentioned that Kitty Sweet Tooth is returning to book stands here soon. So when can people expect that? I think you mentioned up top. And what else are you working on? Yes. So Kitty Sweet Tooth makes a movie is going to come out on October 18th. And um, so the first book is about how she manages and uh, devises a menu at this theater and uh, with a witch and a not mad, but misunderstood scientist. And uh, a lot of crazy things occur with this food and these movies. But now she decided she's going to be a movie director. So she's going to go for it. And with her friends, um, they're directing movies. Like the first book, it has tons of movie references. I'm going to, you know, talk her up to the sky, but the artist Udo Maru is amazing. She is an amazing artist. The stuff is stunning, really cute. She actually did the character design for an anime recently called Mute King. She does Mondo posters too, and she did a Return of the Loving Dead Mondo poster Ooh. from about a month ago. I, it already sold out, but I got mine, you know, so. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so please check out Udo Maru because she is a really amazing artist. And where can people c- check you out? My new book that just came out was is Uniquely Japan, which is like a hardcover book that is about different Japanese cultural topics. And I'm doing, you can go to my website, it has an event page, but I'm doing some Zoom talks for libraries for that. I'm also doing the Gaithersburg, Maryland Book Festival, May 21st, I believe. <laughs> but it's on my website. I know Check where Gaithersburg oh, is. Oh, yes. I am all too familiar. It's going to be my first time. So uh, I'm going to ah, be a guest at the well, book festival, so I'll be there. Have some crabs while you're down there. I have to check if John Waters might be there with his new book. I better check. <laughs> but, he might be. He's going to be here actually May 9th. I just saw uh, a thing. So he'll be in San Francisco. When are you down there? It's May, I think it's May 20th or 21st. I believe uh, maybe you never well, know. Well, you should it look it up. And in the spirit of yeah. the episode, if you see him, shake him down and be like, "Why did you never make anything with Dario Argento?" Oh my gosh, <laughs> I would. I, that's a dream. I should make a comic about that or something. Yeah. Um, anyway, Kitty Sweet Tooth makes a movie is going to be out. I believe it's October 18th. So then I'll be about that. And then I'm just working on some other proposals and mysterious things. We loved having you on. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast for participating in the podcast. We love your books and we hope that you'll, um, you know, come back someday for another episode. I would love to. I am so happy to be here and I keep it up. The podcast is awesome. And I should say uh, my website's abbydenson.com because I don't think we said that before. Thank Thank you, Abby. Thank you. And that was Abby Denson, who is just such a joy. And like we said, she did send us copies of her books and they are adorable. We do recommend you check them out. I loved all the connections we got to make in that episode. The connections between filmmakers that we love and also the connection between Italy and Japan in some ways because of her personal experiences. And also I wouldn't have thought about bringing up the movie House, but now that she did, I'll never... I'll never be able to separate, you know, sort of an Argento spirit from that film because it's there. It was really quite a great parallel. And as I said to Abby in the interview, I love how our conversation with her really exposed a different way we as artists connect to other artists. Every time we have a conversation with with a fan or an, another creator who's influenced by someone on the show, it takes us into a different territory and it shows the many different tendrils that we can be inspired by by someone's art. But Abby really kind of cut to the quick on this and and, and talked about just 
how seeing people like Argento and John Waters and their willingness to create art in spite of everything was enough motivation for her and his motivation for so many other people that that's really what Midnight Mass is about. It truly is. And the other thing about Midnight Mass that I just love so much is this chance to connect with people who also love what we love and to get to talk to them. And I can think of no better place to do that than on the high seas. Oh, <laughs> I love the beat you took. Oh, that that's where she's going. Yeah. But seriously, I got to promote this thing. We're doing the first ever horror cruise or, uh, you know, me and craft tours are doing it. And Midnight Mass, of course, is there in spirit. But in order for this thing to happen, we got to get enough people to, you know, sign up and come on the cruise with us. And so I need to do my, my job, which is to promote the cruise. And so if you're a horror fan, which I hope you are, if you're listening to this episode, join us. And if you want to know more, it's February 2023. The uh, website is horroronthehighseas.com. And there's going to be um, a lot of Rocky Horror going on with Rocky Horror guest stars. There's going to be, you know, Patricia Quinn and Barry Boswick. And there's going to be a lot of hell raising going on with Doug Bradley, who's Pinhead. So I had to shamelessly give that plug because we are doing the Dario Argento episode. Yes. And I can see the parallel because from uh, oceans of water to oceans of blood... That's right. <laughs> We're going to be on the blood red sea. We're going to go deep red. We're going to set the ship a- ablaze like the Poseidon adventure and have an inferno. And uh, oh, this is what good. Else? You're doing, you're doing yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, I, I, I'm doing okay. Right? I liked the Poseidon adventure. Shout out to. <laughs> yeah. not a, That's another movie we need to put on our list. It's not on our list yet. It's not. It's th- crazy. That should be a New Year's Eve special. God, yes. Okay, there you go. Now, Michael, there's other things that we have to promote, including stuff we're doing together. You and I, the Midnight Mass podcast, are joining forces with Severn Films to present our next set of live events, which is the All About Evil screenings, which are happening in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco, hosted by you and me. Yes, I'm so excited because in a way, it's sort of like a return, if you will. Because for those of (laughs) you who have listened to us and heard our stories about the All About Evil tour of yesteryear, 13 years ago, I went on the road with Peaches and bounced around many of our nation's great cities as part of the Tour de Fierce, celebrating all about evil. And now, with the impending Severin Blu-ray release, I get to do it again. But this time, I'm co-hosting the show. That's right. And, and I'm really excited about it because... It won't be the same show that we did no. back in 2010, because that makes no sense. And so part of what I'm excited about is that you get to kind of unlock some of the behind the scenes secrets with the different guest stars we'll have, including moi, myself. I'll be there in full Peaches Regalia. And yeah, it's uh, it's in Los Angeles on June 9th. It's in San Francisco at the Victoria Theater, which is really special because that's where it takes place on June 11th. And then a show that we're not producing, but is being produced by our fabulous friend and podcast guest, Carla Rossi, up in Portland. It's going to be presented by her queer horror series. That happens on June 24th, and that'll be its own show separate from the one that we're doing in Portland. So I am thrilled, and I would love to tell you where to get tickets, but they're not on sale yet, but they're soon to be on sale, maybe by the time this podcast comes out, but I'm waiting to hear from Severin on the details for that. So follow us on social media. We'll get it to you. Yes, but be assured, but we will give you a link when that time comes. If you think that's all we've got for you, as Ron Papil in infomercials of yesterday was fond of saying, but wait, Peaches, there's more. Because 
the week of this episode's release on this upcoming Sunday, May 15th, you can see Peaches and I both as presenters on the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards on Shudder, which I also wrote the damn show. That's right. I mean, we're presenters and we'll be lucky to have a few minutes, which is what happens when you're presenters on an award show. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing us. But more importantly, tune in and support it, because like Michael said, I I was with you. I was behind the scenes. He really worked very hard on pulling that all together. And you did a great job because you know how I know? Because I've read your words from a teleprompter. Well, thank you, Peaches. They were good words to read. (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) listeners can tune in on uh, Sunday, May 15th on Shudder. There's going to be a host of amazing, spooky, ooky horror folks there. Yeah, it's going to be great. And if you're a listener who is clearing your schedule so that you can attend the horror on the high seas, we're going to make uh, Caribbean goth happen. And you're you're penciling out dates to come see us and All About Evil. And you're going to tune in to see us on the Chainsaw Awards. Then it is very clear. You too are a child of the popcorn now. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.